Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Jeff Daggett, founder and CEO of Eyes On, a brand and retail development and management company offering brand, retail, hospitality, and licensing management services and representation in Japan and the United States. Since 2002, Eyes On has assisted a number of big name retail brands such as Apple, Columbia Sportswear, Nordstrom, Shinjuku Takano, and NBC Universal. Jeff's background includes over three decades of experience at leading global companies in the Asia Pacific specifically in investment banking, real estate, retail operations, merchandising, marketing, and general management. This episode is part one of two with Jeff, in which we cover topics like what it was like launching Gap in Japan back in 1994 and recruiting its first management team there, how Levi's became an iconic global brand. We discuss Jeff's involvement in Nike's first ever campaign to go global that originated in Japan, as well as how Nike does retail differently than other top brands. And we finish this episode talking about Sephora's restructuring in Japan and reversing declining year-on-year store sales in under six months. Enjoy. To use an analogy in coming to Japan, in drinking the tea, you don't want to lose sight of who you are and try to become so good at tea ceremony. You're never going to out Japanese the Japanese. You're never going to out Chinese the Chinese. You come as you and you bring what you bring. And so the thing that I think made Gap successful and that Gap was really good about recognizing was to come with the product it had. Did it adapt? Absolutely. Everyone who's in apparel knows you change specs There's a list of things that you amend to succeed in the market that you're coming to. But it was really important that the essence of the brand stay the essence of the brand because that's what customers were going and then did come to the stores for. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Hi, everybody. To Welcome back to The Negotiation. My name is Todd Embley, and I am the host. And I'm excited to welcome Jeff Daggett, founder and CEO of Eyes On. Jeff, welcome to the show. Todd, I'm really happy to be here with you. Yeah, me too. Happy to have you. Let's quickly put you on the map. Where are you right now that we're recording you from? Um, well, as you might be able to see in the background, this is actually downtown Tokyo. Um, this is actually the view out my uh, window. I'm in Hito, right next to Adisagawa Park. For anyone familiar with Tokyo, that's like just down the street from Roppongi, pretty much in the middle of the loop line. Right on. How long have you lived there? Off and on for over 30 years. I first came in 82 and then came again in uh, 85 and then came again uh, in 94 and really haven't left since 94. So um, I've just dated myself. I know that's uh, I I do it all the time, too. Trust me, it just happens. Uh, I'm sure the audience is totally fine with that. But that's a long time. That's quite a tenure in in another country. So this is going to be fascinating. Uh, You've done a lot. You have uh, seen a lot. You've experienced a lot. 
a lot of things macroeconomically that have like on up and down and fluctuated. A lot of companies have come and companies have gone and technology has come and well, really just stayed around. So yeah, let's let's dive into that first. And let's start with a quick introduction to the work that you're doing now. So um, right now with uh, iZone, I spent a lot of time uh, helping uh, businesses come to Japan. And now as the yen grows a little weaker, I'm spending more time helping some of my Japanese friends find uh, markets outside of Japan. My background is primarily in apparel. So I'm really doing a lot in what they call soft lines. But because of my licensing background, I'm uh, serving as licensing agent for a, a few small media businesses as well. Pretty much the core. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And we are going to dive into some of that apparel right after... I ask you a question, maybe personally, how did you end up in Japan? And I know it was a few times, but, you know, walk us through how'd you end up there? Why'd you go back? Why'd you stay? I, um, I, I happily backed into it. Um, my, my life is a series of happy plan B's grew up in and still have a house in and go back as often as I can to a, a little town called Placerville, California. That's between Lake Tahoe and Sacramento in Northern California for anyone, uh, not, not familiar. And, um, in growing up my, my heroes and the, you know, the, the, the folks who were kind of pillars of the community were, you know, they were doctors, lawyers, CPAs. Um, uh, I looked at how long it would take to get through school for all of those and, and, and thought I was making the expedient choice and deciding to become an accountant. Um, but uh, about into my sophomore year of college and burning out in cost accounting courses, which I was taking without context because I hadn't had a lot of business experience, um, I felt the need to take what uh, I think in other places is called a gap year. So uh, I had some friends in the dormitory, Japanese friends, Korean friends, and then discussing with different folks, an acquaintance of mine got me a, a, a position in Japan teaching English. And a lot of us come to Asia that way. And it's, it's a great way to get to know the customer because you're with them and you think you're teaching them, but they are absolutely teaching you. And so I spent a year um, as the, and the thing that helped me was my first, it was my first year in Japan. I was the youngest instructor at the English school I was working at. So I got all the classes no one else wanted. So I was sent to Kawasaki Steel because you had to leave the school to teach that course. And I was sent to Fuji Oil and I had to leave the school to teach that course. It was in a 30 minute train ride to go down and, you know, teaching the, uh, the division managers in charge of shutdown maintenance for the refinery, like, you know, real hardcore. We're the guys that, you know, rebuilt or, or, you know, built Japan. Um, and so again, here I am thinking I'm, I'm teaching and I do believe I was able to make some contribution in, in, you know, in, in, you know, teaching my native language, but I absolutely sponged the kind of like the value system and the way folks, uh, I remember one point, uh, confiding with this one, uh, Bucho or division manager that, um, I was teaching at Fuji oil that, you know, I was taking accounting and I was burnt out a little bit because he goes, you know, you can, Higher accountants, and it was kind of like mind blown, kind of, um, which has turned out to be a really good thing because anyone, all the folks who've worked with me in finance know that um, that I absolutely need all the professionals around me I can get in finance and everything else. But let me ask you another question: You've been there a long time. How's your Japanese? I would call it fluent, but understand as a native speaker, um, it's uh, the, the work of a lifetime. And even through COVID here, I would have to say my English has also fallen off dramatically. As a result, I, I've just gotten back together with an old Japanese um, TV producer friend that I met like 30 years ago on a project. And we started up a, a small project. He goes, Jeff, your Japanese sucks. 
And I think he's right. I mean, we're, obviously, we're having that conversation in Japanese, but his point being, I could be better. I'm uh, when I speak Japanese, no doubt I am framing or initiating my thoughts in an English sentence structure. Uh, and even though I'm speaking Japanese, it's not quite the way someone who had just come up through the Japanese school system would speak. Uh, no doubt. I think that there's a measure of success that you can take away from somebody telling you that your your Japanese or your Mandarin sucks. Yes. Because for a very long time, people are generally understanding that it, the assumption and the knowledge apparently is that you do are not very good. You you're it sucks. And yeah. then um, and so they they just appreciate that you're trying because they can right. see that you're trying and fumbling. And and then you get to a point where it really does seem like, you know, the language and then they can say, wow, it's it's really not very good. Yes. Without the context of how much accolades it took, you know, along the way to get to it actually sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> worthwhile pointing out. Okay. Um, you took a gap here. Funny enough, ended up at the gap. Uh, so, <laughs> so let's dive into your work in Japan uh, with the gap. It was just under three years. Uh, you were launching gap in Japan. And I just want to know what that experience was like between, um, you know, uh, in, in the areas of uh, 94 and 95. Uh, it was an incredible experience. I came out of uh, graduate school, um, managed through some acquaintances at Mitsui Fudo-san who had some inkling that Gap was interested in going to Japan to get an interview with with Don Fisher. And uh, this was in late 1991, uh, maybe early, could have even been early 1992. Um, and his first interview question, which I've always used when I'm working in retail ever since is, can you see yourself working in the stores? Because for anyone in retail, you know, this there the, the store is company headquarters and company headquarters is back office so um it's really important to understand uh in that business how product comes in gets on the floor how it leaves in a customer's shopping bag obviously now we're doing a lot of this digitally but the you know the concept is the same and i knowing that i was really lucky in that interview because i was later told that um a, a, a lot of folks you know looking for you know jobs and strategy or something like that in retail will kind of miss that and, and say, no, I was actually thinking of working your headquarters, which again is back office. Um, uh, I said, absolutely. So he said no promises, but in his office, he picked the phone up, uh, called um, a local store manager and said, you do not have to hire this person, but I'm going to send them to you. And um, if you can use him, um, you know, uh, see how he does. And so I started on the floor seasonal hire six dollars and fifty cents an hour now we knew that there was you know there would be you know other opportunities uh um and so i you know i learned a lot i learned to show up i learned to be on time learned to pick things up off the floor um had to be taught to see an empty hanger on the wall because i'd walk by it until someone taught me to make that distinction um all, all the things that you retail pros out there already know um you know i learned on the learned on the floor and then after a couple months of you know kind of you know establishing trust and actually 
touring a few of the potential Japanese partners through the stores, um, got my first consulting job with them. So I actually started in the headquarters concurrently as working at $6.50 an hour as a seasonal hire in the store, which I did not stop doing, um, was working in, in headquarters as a consultant and working with, um, actually every Tuesday, uh, I would go in with, with, uh, in to meet with Don Fisher because the Japan expansion was very much his baby. Um, and we built the business plan. So I, I want to be clear that, I, I was a part of starting the, you know, the, the business of Gap in Japan, right. but it was a team effort. And I would, yeah. I, sh I should probably better characterize my role uh, on my resume at that point as being scribe because I kind of talked to everyone and pulled the plan together. Fair to say that was your first professional role outside of teaching uh, at, a, at a brand in, in Japan? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I had a stint at uh, Nomura Securities as an, as an analyst that taught me a lot. But my 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 first actual role at a brand building a business was was at the Gap. And I am eternally grateful to them. OK, so when you were there in the early days, what do you what did you think that you were doing well um, and, and maybe some things that you you got wrong? I think the things that the, that the, that the gap did well was just being the, the gap. So particularly up until that point, most businesses in Japan were still coming over with a, a partner, like a trading company partner or um, a large uh, retail partner, and they were done through joint ventures. We had the good fortune to, um, uh, my boss at the time, Bill Fisher, knew Steve Burke at the Disney Store well. Um, they were on good terms. And the Disney Store had just opened in Japan, and they were one of the first US retailers to open in Japan, independent of any partner. Um, and, the, and the gap, we've, you know, the gap team also felt you know it was really important to go direct there were several partners that that the gap talked to but in the end the decision was to was to was to open direct and in the process of coming to japan at any time not even that time a year years later i had the opportunity to um uh, help some of the apple folks as they were getting ready uh, to open japan and a lot of folks will tell you you have to change what you're doing to succeed in in Japan or wherever you go. And this is true, but you can't lose the essence of what you are um, in, to use an analogy in coming to Japan in drinking the tea, you don't want to lose sight of who you are um, and, and try to become so good at tea ceremony. You're never going to out Japanese, the Japanese, you're never going to out Chinese, the Chinese, you come as you and you bring what you bring. And so the thing that I think made gap successful in the gap, was really good about recognizing was to come um, with the product it had. Did it adapt? Absolutely. Everyone who's in apparel knows you change specs. There's, you know, there's a there's a there's a list of things that you amend uh, to succeed in the market that you're that you're coming to. But it was really important that that the essence of the brand stay the essence of the brand because that's what customers were going and then did come to the stores for. In that area of the world where you were essentially cutting your teeth on understanding it were there do you have any examples of experiences learnings and growth uh in yourself um that you took from that role into subsequent role subsequent roles patience definitely became a, a better listener as as one's japanese partners were explaining what typically needed to be done to be successful in japan you know you, you know we would spend a lot of time listening to that we were fortunate to before gap went to japan um it had a program called the international sales program so it already had some experience selling its uh, products in japan at the time the products were sold through a, a 
really old and well-established uh, trading company, denim trading company here called Eiko Shoji. And um, the, the Takahashi family uh, that ran that business was just amazing in the in the advice they gave on what um, what what modifications needed to be done to 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 product and learn to listen learn to respect there's there's of course we always want to be disruptive but a lot of times the best way to be disruptive is is the uh, move gradual and then suddenly uh, a method and so in, in you know in 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 that sense um you know although the gap came to japan the the initial moves were were slow there was one store then there were two stores and there were three stores and then of course you know the for, you know the the format the business formula is then proven all of your real estate partners are now trusting you um, they understand that you can do what you can do you have trained staff and then you you know you move more quickly so that that element of 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 patience and being being willing to be methodical and not uh, dinging yourself because in year one you haven't opened 30 stores um, it's you know it's important to be realistic in a rollout so at that time, of course, this is pre-e-commerce. So the yes. brick and mortar, those retail locations, the choices made uh, around those, that's what I want to explore right now. So as you're growing, um, I'm curious as to what kind of decision-making rubrics were in place when when you were looking at uh, brick and mortar and retail there in, in a place like Japan. The trade-offs in in opening are always: Do you go to the suburbs where it's easier to get locations and open quicker, or do you open that choice flagship location at the center of town, despite the time, effort, and expense that's going to take? And at, at the time, still conventional wisdom was that you really needed to open that your your first store in a real flagship like location. That's that's news. That's what gets you your PR, and more importantly, it's what the Japanese industry at the time looked to as a kind of a, a marker of a, of a business that understood how to do things right. Um, and, uh, and so uh, Gap worked very hard and um, was very fortunate to have a couple kind of champions actually in Japanese department stores. So Gap's first landlord was um, a Hankyu department store actually in the Ginza. So because Hankyu controlled space right across from uh, the, the the Sony flagship um, uh, building in Ginza, uh, and uh, because they were um, you know willing to put Gap in there, that really gave Gap a chance to start from Ginza, so that. Uh, when it was ready to open its 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 next store out in the suburban, but still very important area of, of to go to Tamagawa, that store didn't look like it had opened first, and that maybe Gap didn't know how to open stores in Japan, according to what was conventional wisdom at the time. The wonderful thing about conventional wisdom is someone will come along and change it for us, uh, and sometimes we'll do it ourselves. Um, but at the time, that was the conventional wisdom, and it was really thanks to Hankyu Department Store for that first location. The third location was uh, Isetan in Shinjuku, uh, putting a gap store on the second floor in, in, uh, in Isetan there. And that, those were also kind of stamps of uh, approval or of a business knowing you know, how to do business in Japan. And at that time, um, I think that really helped Gap get started. What about things like negotiating space or contracts or price? What was it like going through those processes in Japan? At, at Gap, Gap was really fortunate to have a really 
really good development team. Uh, Don Fish himself, having come from a real estate background, that was really part of the heart of the operations of Gap. And there was um, a, another real estate the development professional that came in and, and did that. But I did learn a lot observing him uh, do, those, do those negotiations. I think that Gap was fortunate in that there was a lot of interest in having Gap come in. So my recollection now is that there wasn't a lot of convincing that needed to be done, particularly after, you know, lining up uh, Ginza Hankyu and uh, Hidesaburo Matsuda, the, the then um, managing director of uh, Hankyu, kind of, you know, having given Gap a seal of approval by, by um, providing space in Ginza. Um, you know, I think that also in turn helped a lot of the other conversations to go uh, more smoothly. I know e-commerce, we all know e-commerce has drastically impacted and changed retail, but wanted to maybe just tie off the conversation around Gap here, just asking if if you think just really around retail, which isn't dead, it's still, still alive, would those conversations have changed just from what you said about, you know, and I, and I think back to those times, I think there was, correct me if I'm wrong, but an allure to foreign brands, because I just don't know if the world was as global um, in 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 product and retail as much as it is today. And you know, I, I've thought that there there was a there was an uh, aspect of of not rolling out the red carpet, but like a really wanting to expand the city's image as being truly global. That's a part of it. So you get some some treatment that goes along with that. Now, if you're going and you're looking to do uh, expand retail uh, and brick and mortar, would, would things have changed with, would relationship management and, and, and uh, negotiations have changed? I, I think so. I, I think it's a lot harder now to, to make the case for it can be done, but to make the case for how you're different, but it's, it's, it's never easy to do that. That's always the, the, the challenge. And even for gap in the beginning, there were ahead of, Gap opening in Japan um, night from you know from 1994 95 onwards, um, the Gap really put in the legwork from 1992. So so from from 19 well and even before that uh, when I was able to start with the Gap's international division, I inherited a, a filing cabinet of over 10 years of inquiries from Japan just on Banana Republic, for example. Um, so so there was already a lot of interest in. You know, Gap is a company. Then the Gap uh, brands, and then, but you know, Gap still spent a couple years making its case. You know, spent time with um, uh, um, Nobukazu Muto, who at the time was the managing director of Visaton, and he and his his New York uh, office lead spent you know three days just touring stores and explaining how the Gap merchandise model worked. Department stores generally have a, a twice a year markdown cycle, and we were explaining how you know. It, Kind of similar to more what we see in e-commerce today, how there were multiple drops across the course of a year and constantly marking down, constantly checking to see what's not working and marking that down, moving it to clearance. Something that um, the department store model in Japan at the time was not set up to do, but there was very, I think that aspect also was very attractive to to Mr. Muto and his team. So, um, I, you know, we we did spend a lot of time making that case. Today, you still have to make that case. I think it's harder. Um, I. I uh, mostly because of the Japanese consumer is what we call, I, I now call it post post consumer. Um, we kind of went from consumer to post consumer where, you know, no one had to have that LVMH bag 
not had to had to have the bag. Um, and now we're in a place where, you know, if Gucci does a really cool Doraemon collaboration, well, that's interesting. I'll get that. But it's but there's no it, it, in Japan now, relatively speaking, because there are cohorts who, you know, the, you know, still that Gucci bag or LVMH bag is exactly the the social signal that that the, the brands expect and need them to be. But um, there, you know, there's a much larger cohort here in Japan that's willing to go. Yeah, but 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 amaze me. Um, uh, so so that's I think part of the challenge that we have here in Japan right now is um, is you know you 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 need to have a, a different you know and very exciting story. The, the bright the bright point of all this though is um, a, a wise uh, retail strategist um, once once told me um, there there are no overstored markets only under merchandised ones meaning no matter what we do we always have an opportunity to get you know and it's storytelling compelling product you know attractively priced well merchandised including you know visual merchandise whether it's on it that is still always the opportunity and it's always in front of us. So, um, I, you know, I would not discourage anyone from, uh, you know, coming and being, you know, the, the next uh, blockbuster business in Japan or anywhere. Last question on the gap and uh, your time there. Uh, you also initiated recruitment for the first management team uh, for Gap Japan. Um, just wondering if you could speak to a, a few of the key principles um, that you were using uh, when you approached that task. Frankly, my first, heavy recruiting opportunity was was when I moved to Levi's because at the time I came over with Japan, I was working for a, a country lead and I was his director of operations. So the, the role I had was more of, of you know, helping and, and talking to, but the decision was really made and as it should have been by the, by the, by the country manager. But again, it was looking for people who had the linguistic ability because um, we, you know, we were not, fully operating in Japanese at the time we were still operating in English and still had a huge team back in San Francisco that needed needed to be communicated with. So obviously it was language ability. Um, you know, it was, um, you know, service ability, uh, and, and, uh, those sorts of things. After the gap, as you mentioned, you went to Levi's and just so people can start chalking up the resume, uh, notches, then you went to Nike and just for time, I think we should just jump straight into the time at Nike as well. And the first question out of the gate with regards to Nike that I wanted to ask was based on really how well Nike has done globally for so long, they do, they're just an iconic brand and they're iconic globally. I wanted to just understand maybe a little bit and have you just spend a minute talking about what it is that they really, really do well that gives them that sustainability around being an iconic brand? What are they doing better than anybody else and how they've managed to maintain that or sustain that in your opinion? And then how did you see that manifest and be able to continue upon entering Japan? So I, I had the opportunity to join uh, Nike right in the middle of the just do it years. And I think that kind of encapsulates the, the, um, the, the, the attractiveness, no matter where you go. Um, there's, a, you know, there's this can do uh, spirit um, that, and, you know, everything aspirational Nike clearly uses, um, you know, amazing aspirational athletes to, to tell the story. And at the same time, 
you know, always lets every customer know every, anyone with a, at the, at the time we used to talk a lot about, you know, anyone with a body is an athlete. This too is you in your way, in your, in your life. So it was aspirational and accessible at the same time. And I think that's really important is it's understandable that one always wants to go for the aspirational, but in doing that, it's important to not get too far ahead of the customer or use role models that, that may seem aspirational, but maybe turn out to be because they're just too uh, out of reach. So uh, like, for example, in Japan, Japan was very careful to use athletes here in, you know, local baseball players and like um, uh, Nakata was a very uh, well-known football or for American soccer player. Obviously right now, Naomi Osaka is in the news. Uh, At the time, we had this amazing aspirational tennis player called Ai Sugiyama. She was amazing and a role model for whether you were a man or a woman just her stick to on the on the on, you know on the, on the court was you know that all of these things kind of combined you know with you know the the way uh, Nike and Nike's longtime uh, you know uh, marketing partners at Wyden and Kennedy again great storytellers um, you know were always able to you know put together uh, you know a, a compelling story for why even though there's no finish line we're going to still cross it today. Obviously, Nike has had a ton of star athletes represent the brand. And I think you're absolutely right that um, that's been a big deal. Um, That's been really, really important. Uh, You alluded to also a little bit of the localization of that strategy. Um, You know, yeah, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, these guys are going to do a lot for the brand uh, inside Japan. But you can't forget to make the brand seem a little bit more familiar and something achievable is to bring in the the local star athletes as well. And as you said, it was and I'll just jump straight to it. I know that those endorsement deals were were a big part of the success um, that they had in Japanese market. Is this still the case, in your opinion, for sports and fitness brands that are looking to grow in Japan? Definitely, yes. But what you may choose as an aspirational model after you look at what everyone else is doing around you, it might be a handful of uh, influencers. It could be a few entrepreneurs that have started that you know, new, really cool ath- athletics app. Definitely, you can still get the big baseball player. Um, you know, right right now in our era, uh, in Japan, you know, everyone's um, gaga over you know Otani, just like he pitches, he hits. He's like, wait, Shohei Otani. His uh, you know, his Babe Ruth come back. He might be the best baseball player that they've ever seen. Absolutely, you cannot you cannot beat that, and brands absolutely where they can associate with that. Uh, but depending on what your brand story is and your positioning, there are still ways to, you know, be even more um, accessible. There are there are a lot of small success stories. You find someone who started a, a, a new marathon here and feature them or um, a, as a sports brand, you you really do have a lot of options. And it's up to you where you want to tell the story and how you want to tell the story. And as long as it's I believe this is my belief is an opinion, as long as it's aspirational and accessible. And I think that's key. You know, Otani's great, but one could argue how accessible is he? Let's be honest, which of us is really going to be an Otani or, a, you know, in an earlier area, you know, a Michael Jordan? There's there's one of those. Ideally, you even combine those if, you know, if you can afford an Otani and then tell a lot of local stories, which I think Nike did really well and does really well. You had a hand in that. And how well they they do these. I was a participant. You were a participant. You were a participant. You know, we are going to get to 
learnings made via the yep. failures, right? And and you've agreed to kind of open up about yep. the mistakes and that's going to be great. We're going to get to that. But you were a part of that first ever what was reputed to be the first ever Nike campaign that started in Japan that was actually then adopted yes. for global use. So I want you to tell it, tell everybody what the campaign yeah. was, how it came to be, why it was so successful in Japan. And then hello, why did they decide to take that global? So like most great campaigns as, as a marketing director, I have shamelessly taken credit for something that Wyden and Kennedy did most of the work on. We had a shoe, you know, it was in the global line. So the, the shoe was was not made just for Japan, but it was clear it was going to do well in Japan. And at the, at the time it was called Presto. And um, I, I would leave it to my um, former and current Nike colleagues that know better to tell me whether or not my recollection is is correct, but I believe it evolved into what Nike now calls free. Uh, but Wyden and Kennedy came up with a, a campaign that, that really accentuated the fact that this was one of the first shoes because it would, was built to be um, a little bit more price point accessible. And there were multiple colors. So the, the campaign was kind of mood rings for feet, different colors. And um, it was the first campaign where in kind of shades of future internet, uh, we had the opportunity to use uh, NTT Docomo's iMode. So iMode was not even 2.5G. I believe it was like 2G. It was a proprietary browser that 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 ran on your flip phone. But um, uh, uh, again, the Wyden and Kennedy team did a, a great job of you know figuring out a way to make those shoes look really good on a postage stamp sized uh, LCD screen. The campaign worked really well. The shoes worked really well. So well, in fact, that we then later copied it in apparel. And that worked so well that Uniqlo then copied Nike. So Uniqlo then a, a year later comes out with its first 15 colors of fleece line. Uh, incidentally, that campaign was also done by Wyden and Kennedy. And I think there were some shots fired, uh, uh. <laughs> but, but that's how, that's how influential that, that came campaign and that kind of string of successes with color choice um, in a comfortable you know, attractive, you know, piece of merchandise, again, compelling merchandise, attractively presented. Uh, and then that campaign actually would, you know, kind of rolled into something that, uh, that was adopted in the U S globally as well. Yeah. You know what they say about imitation, best form yeah. of flattery. However, when you're Nike, I don't think you care about flattery. <laughs> <laughs> you're at the, when, when you're on top, you don't need people telling you great job. Yeah. You're on top. Okay. So, and then part of your stint with Nike, um, being the retail director for a couple of years, um, you then saw some massive success in those roles, yes. um, exponential growth. I think I'm reading it right. Culminating in 110 million USD in revenue, yes. annual revenue, when you moved on to, you know, more senior roles. And yet a Nike direct to consumer uh, online or offline retail experiences is a pretty unique one around the the world. I, I would say that you, if somebody took you blindfolded through a mall and, and then plopped you into a, a Nike store, you'd know within about a half a second opening your eyes that you were in a Nike store. Yeah, I would, I, I would smell it. At this point, I'd been in stores for long enough that I can, I can smell the EVA, the foam. <laughs> well, I, I mean, a lot of retail, they, they, I mean, they go with scent, right? The minute yeah. you walk into a store, you're yeah. greeted with a fragrance 
that oh, yeah. defines that brand as well. I mean, that's and hotels do it. I still have a response. I go in and I get I get excited. I it's it's odd. I know one of my quirks. <laughs> it's, it's tapping into a a lot of a emotional response pathology of you know that's evolved with with really driving and 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 the culmination of those emotions that you that you want a consumer to feel when they walk into a store, right? What does Nike do differently in their retail presence and experiences? And what did you learn about retail in general from from that environment? First, I need to in, in, introduce this is is of a kind of a fail to success. So um, I was initially interviewing at Nike, and at the time they were talking about wanting to build a, a Nike town in 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 Tokyo. And in uh, what turned out to be a fortunate, it, but at the time I called bait and switch. When I joined, they said, "But we have this issue. Um, we had all these Air Max uh, 96s and and now they're just stuck in our warehouse because we made too many. Uh, and um, uh, we need some help uh, clearing merchandise. Can you open outlets for us instead? It was the job and it was a challenge. I mean, doing a Nike town would have been a, a, a huge challenge, but needing to open outlets, open them quickly. Um, and in the and also um, uh, Nike had hired a lot of staff through the the Air Max boom, so a lot of folks came over from the sales team to retail. And generally speaking, anywhere in the world, retail is not necessarily anyone's first choice of of a, a career destination. If you're already right, you can you can empathize em, empathize with them, right? If you're you know, you've come in, your your day-to-day job has been to go in and, you know, sell to, you know, high-level meetings with Foot Locker and whatnot. And then someone tells you, we don't want to lay you off. Can you go help these new guys that are that are that are starting retail? But I will say to the credit of every one of those salespeople, they were invaluable to getting Nike's retail business up and running because they knew the product, they were on it. And so we we built a team that was backed with a lot of product knowledge from the from that sales team coming over, and it was really that that helped us really very quickly from because it was uh, um, when I joined Nike had one store in Osaka Osaka Tsunami Blossom a great core team had 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 opened that but it was like you know, three people um, but we immediately you know put in you know hired a merchandising director we you know hired a you know head of finance we hired a, a you know store development team you know store construction team um a, hr team um operations team which you know over you know also oversaw you know oversaw all of the um uh, the folks that actually went in the stores very and so very quickly we were able to put that infrastructure in place and got nike to a place where um almost all of its sales were wholesale to uh, a point because we needed to, because we had this huge inventory overhang to where retail was about 30 for 35% of, of sales. Now, because retail is, you know, the price we sell at retail is all, you know, easily double what the wholesale price is. It was, you know, it was quite easy, you know, on a math basis to go to 35% of, of sales because we were getting a higher price for the product. We were selling relative to the wholesale sales team, but still it, it was a team effort. It happened really quickly. It happened because it needed to happen. And uh, I'm, still to this day, really proud of that team and keeping close touch with, with all those people. And that was part of it. It was kind of like this, we realized we had a mission. It was, it kind of felt like mission impossible. And for, and for, for, and I'm sure anyone out there that's, that's, that started a new team, right? You go through that, you get the, first you get the, the, whatever office space you can get, because nobody knows what to do with you yet. And, you know, you'll grouse about it. But then later you look back and go, man, those were the days when we were like shoehorned in that corner and no one was, you know, 
no one was you know able to find us and um so went through you know went through through all of that and um uh, it was just an uh, amazing experience so i'm i'm still delighted i never had a chance to open a nike town in tokyo Boy, I wish you'd sent me those shoes, though, back in the day, what they would be worth today. My Asia Pacific marketing director in in Portland, we often talked about, you know, we've, you know, the the, the apocryphal or cultural tales of them, you know, digging up the big container of like the Atari ET game out in the desert. We even then we were talking about, you know, if we buried a container of these Air Force whatevers out in the Mojave Desert and dug them up in 20 years, we could eat like kings. We could never figure out how to system to do that. But we we were aware. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's a retirement package uh, right there. And so many of those things. I mean, I, I just the evolution of of kicks. Right. Like, yeah. I don't know when it started and maybe maybe you can tell me, but this shoe hoarding this like every time new Nikes or Jordans come out, everybody's got to have them. They yeah. got to go and get them. And yeah. they a lot of people I know, a lot of guys I know, especially on the Air Jordan side, just have closets yeah. full of them yeah. unopened, never worn. Yeah. Just in there. They just they love collecting shoes. I don't know. I, I won't say anything about it it's just i never would have thought that would be a thing when yeah. i was playing basketball in the 80s in high school yeah i mean who who, who knew <laughs> i wish i kept mine well it's you know i think it's an art form and and it's of of the of some of the first things that we begin to collect kind of you know earlier in our lives the, the shoe is one of the few 3d I, I don't I don't want to elevate this to you know anything other than the fact that yes it's just a kick but but it's it's three dimensional it's been it's been very carefully designed the it you know it's got it's got style and I, I think it excites us in a way that apparel also excites us but apparel is and and always will be by the nature of how we wear it and how we build it it's essentially a two D product and so with footwear is one of the first things I think that is introduced to 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 our our lives when, particularly when we get out and we're you know first shopping for ourselves and that sort of thing um yeah we're wearing it but it's i, I don't think it necessarily hits us consciously as art um but it's a, it's a you know it's a collect it's collectible you know it's you know it's not a figure like a gi joe or something like that but it's yeah it's, it's got that it's physical and it's 3d and it's quite often got a really cool design because a team spent a lot of time to figure out how to get that upper in just the right way, you know, on that sole. And, and they all, and they all smell wonderful. Again, that's just me having spent too much time in a Nike store, but it's got the cool factor. I mean, it's just, it's got that cachet um, that stands the test of time and it's, it's, it's always going to be worth something, you know, it's never, it's never not. Yeah. Uh, I don't think now to said potential failures, right? Yep. So audience, if you have a box of tissues <laughs> close by some tearjerker stories coming after Nike, you moved on to Sephora where you led a turnaround and yes. then, um, and then a shutdown, Yes, uh, which was obviously must've been very difficult. So tell us what happened, why? And you know, and then I'll get to like, you know, what did you learn and what would you do differently? You know, if you had yeah. to do it all over again, but yeah, tell us what happened. So um, in, in 2001, I had the opportunity to, to go to work for Sephora Japan. This was my first representative director, kind of like, you know, the boss, like president job. Um, and I'll be internally grateful to um, the, the team that, that 
hired me there and I was, you know, very well mentored. And, uh, but I was the third general manager in a period of 18 months. Um, and I, and I probably made things worse for myself because recognizing that I dragged my feet a little bit before finally joining. Um, uh, but, uh, there were, there were seven stores open, but the struggle at the time was it was very difficult to get local cosmetics companies to supply because Isetan, the department store with uh, the most to lose from a new competitor in as much as in essence, the department stores, and this is true of many markets in Asia, but definitely Japan at the time, the department store cosmetics floor is its bread and butter. You do not mess with the department store cosmetics floor. And we did something that I called poke the bear. The first rule of commerce and life is never poke the bear. But um, uh, my predecessor, rather my predecessor's predecessor had come in and done a lot of press that read, whether he intended to say this or not, I'll just say the way the press read was, we're here, we're going to wreck the department store cosmetics floor business. So... Of course, what my friend, Mr. Muto and others, you know, Isetan and the other department stores did is they called up, you know, the big uh, suppliers here, whether it be Shiseido or, or smaller importers, but really important importers uh, because they handle skincare, which is incredibly important in Japan, called up and said, well, you can sell to Sephora, but your business will fall out a window here. Um, so, uh, you know, because of that, you know, uh, you know, Albion wouldn't return our calls. Uh, we were lucky that Shiseido did do some work with us. Even our internal, we were part of LVMH. Um, the the LVMH cosmetics um, brands worked with us because they were told to, but they were less than delighted. Um, so uh, it, you know, it was so it was a real challenge. We were we were in a situation where we had to survive, and we had a lot of people rooting for us to not survive. Uh, and then on top of that, we had kind of an own goal situation in that we had our own private line, private label, and a lot of the product was fantastic. But it was, I thought, a number of us locally thought it was mispriced. And the reason we thought that is that several of the lines were gathering dust in the stores. And you know, our, our, our planning team would go, we're getting great margins on this. It's terrific. But if, you know, you, you've got to be able to you know, make money on this stuff. You've got to be able to sell it. We had a lot of product in the stores that was not turning. It was high margin, but we weren't selling a lot of it. And it was directly tied to the fact that we were overpriced. So the conversation we had with our planners was, you know, we as a company would prefer to get cash as opposed to a high percentage. Uh, so do we really need to do that and say, well, does the company pay you in cash or percentage? Well, we get cash. We like that. He said, the company likes that too. So we, we agreed to lower prices that increased our turn, it increased the number of uh, units we were able to sell. And we actually made more money at the lower prices. Um, so the, most of your retailers out there will understand that you know, there's a classic gross margin return on investment factor going on there, where uh, if you're someone like a Walmart and you've got a, a, a lower margin, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fail. It means you're going to succeed because you're going to turn your inventory over more often. And we did that. So we got gross margin return on investment. We got our gross margin dollars up. Um, we got a couple of the stores into the black. There were a couple really big stores that were too big for us to do that. But then 9-11 came and uh, we were owned through DFS. 
Uh, and DFS had no customers in any of its duty-free stores anywhere in the world, no cash. Uh, and Arno and the LVMH group had to make a decision. Some, some business like the U.S. already had over 70 stores. So it was too big to close and too big to immediately find a buyer. But um, Sephora in Germany was closed. I was asked to close Sephora in Japan. Um, he sold the Phillips Auction House, which I don't think he wanted to do. Um, so, uh, you know, 9-11, like many folks, uh, had a really big impact, um, you know, on the group and on us specifically. So we spent very late portion of 2001 and then the first half of 2002 unwinding um, Sephora in, in Japan, which was a disappointment because Sephora had an amazing offer and that in one place you could get great skincare, you could get great color. And then if you wanted to also get fragrance, which is not as uh, heavily weighted as a business in, in Japan, but is, but, but was and still is important. You could get that all in, in one location. That plus a lot of other really cool things that if you're a cosmetics user were really difficult to find elsewhere. Uh, it can be humid in Japan. Um, we sold a product that would seal your mascara, which is really important here. We sold a lot of it. So uh, it was unfortunate because that place, you know, that for that, you know, went away. And I think because of the early challenges of the department stores, uh, unique amongst all of the other markets, um, I don't think LVMH really looked seriously at ever opening Sephora in Japan. Again, I, uh, in 2010, uh, they did take one more look at it. And unfortunately, the person who was kind of leading that charge passed away. And I think that that was kind of the end of that second and last look. I, I still personally think that anytime the LVMH group wants to bring Sephora to Japan, it'll do well. But, you know, it's it's I think it's just been difficult, you know, keeping in mind the need to preserve and not once again be seen to be poking the bear uh, of the uh, of the department store cosmetics floors, which are really important to the group. So growing a company is hard doing it in a foreign market exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.